Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice J, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story... The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers Do not scoff crazy. Their madness lasts longer than ours. Here is the difference. Toward the end of the year 1920, the government of the United States had practically completed the program, adopted during the last months of President Winthrop's administration. The country was apparently tranquil, Everybody knows how the tariff and labor questions were settled. The war with Germany, incident on that country, seizure of the Samoan Islands, had left no visible scars upon the Republic, and the temporary occupation of Norfolk by the invading army had been forgotten in the joy over repeated naval victories and the subsequent ridiculous plight of General von Gartenlaub's forces in the state of New Jersey. The Cuban and Hawaiian investments had paid 100%, and the territory of Samoa was well worth its cost as a coaling station. The country was in a superb state of defense. Every coast city had been well supplied with land fortifications. The army, under the parental eye of the general staff, organized according to the Prussian system, had been increased to 300,000 men, with a territorial reserve of a million, and six magnificent squadrons of cruisers and battleships patrolled the six stations of the navigable seas, leaving a steam reserve amply fitted to control home waters. The gentlemen from the West had at last been constrained to acknowledge that a college for the training of diplomats was as necessary as law schools are for the training of barristers. Consequently, we were no longer represented abroad by incompetent patriots. The nation was prosperous. Chicago, for a moment paralyzed after a second great fire, had risen from its ruins and was more beautiful than the city which had been built for its plaything in 1893. Everywhere, good architecture was replacing bad, and even in New York, a sudden craving for decency had swept away a great portion of the existing horrors. Streets had been widened, properly paved and lighted, trees had been planted, squares laid out, Elevated structures demolished and underground roads built to replace them. The new government buildings and barracks were fine bits of architecture, and the long system of stone keys which completely surrounded the island had been turned into parks, which proved a godsend to the population. The subsidizing of the state theater and state opera brought its own reward. The United States National Academy of Design was much like European institutions of the same kind. Nobody envied the Secretary of Fine Arts, either his cabinet position or his portfolio. The Secretary of Forestry and Game Preservation had a much easier time, thanks to the new system of National Mounted Police. We had profited well by the latest treaties with France and England, the checking of immigration, the new laws concerning naturalization, and the gradual centralization of power in the executive all contributed to national calm and prosperity. When the government solved the Indian problem and squadrons of Indian cavalry scouts in native costume were substituted for the pitiable organizations tacked on to the tail of skeletonized regiments, 
by a former Secretary of War, the nation drew a long sigh of relief. When, after the colossal Congress of Religions, bigotry and intolerance were laid in their graves, and kindness and charity began to draw warring sects together, many thought the millennium had arrived, at least in the New World, which, after all, is a world by itself. But self-preservation is the first law, and the United States had to look on in helpless sorrow, as Germany, Italy, Spain, and Belgium writhed in the throes of anarchy, while Russia, watching from the Caucasus, stooped and bound them one by one. In the city of New York, the summer of 1899 was signaled by the dismantling of the elevated railroads. The summer of 1900 will live in the memories of New York people for many a cycle. The Dodge statue was removed in that year. In the following winter began that agitation for the repeal of the laws prohibiting suicide, which bore its final fruit in the month of April 1920, when the first government lethal chamber was opened on Washington Square. I had walked down that day from Dr. Archer's house on Madison Avenue, where I had been as a mere formality. Ever since that fall from my horse four years before, I had been troubled at times with pains in the back of my head and neck, but now for months they had been absent, and the doctor sent me away that day saying there was nothing more to be cured in me. It was hardly worth his fee to be told that. I knew it myself. Still, I did not grudge him the money. What I minded was the mistake which he made at first. When they picked me up from the pavement where I lay unconscious, and somebody had mercifully sent a bullet through my horse's head, I was carried to Dr. Archer and he, pronouncing my brain affected, placed me in his private asylum where I was obliged to endure treatment for insanity. At last he decided that I was well, and I, knowing that my mind has always been as sound as his, if not sounder, paid my tuition, as he jokingly called it, and left. I told him, smiling, that I would get even with him for his mistake, and he laughed heartily and asked me to call once in a while. I did so, hoping for a chance to even up accounts, but he gave me none, and I told him I would wait. The fall from my horse had fortunately left no evil results. On the contrary, it had changed my whole character for the better. From a lazy young man about town, I had become active, energetic, temperate, and above all, oh, above all else, ambitious. There was only one thing which troubled me. I laughed at my own uneasiness, and yet it troubled me. During my convalescence, I had bought and read for the first time The King in Yellow. I remember after finishing the first act that it occurred to me that I had better stop. I started up and flung the book into the fireplace. The volume struck the barred grate and fell open on the hearth in the firelight. If I had not caught a glimpse of the opening words in the second act, I should never have finished it. But as I stooped to pick it up, my eyes became riveted to the open page, and with a cry of terror, or perhaps it was of joy, so poignant that I suffered in every nerve, I snatched the thing out of the coals and crept shaking to my bedroom, where I read it and re-read it, and wept and laughed and trembled with a horror which at times assails me yet. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Carcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon. When the twin suns sink into the lake of Halley, 
and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. I pray God will curse the writer as the writer has cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. When the French government seized the translated copies which had just arrived in Paris, London, of course, became eager to read it. It is well known how the brook spread like an infectious disease, from city to city, from continent to continent, barred out here, confiscated there, denounced by press and pulpit, censured even by the most advanced of literary anarchists. Definite principles had been violated in these wicked pages. No doctrine promulgated, no convictions outraged. Could not be judged by any known standard, yet, although it was acknowledged that the supreme note of art had been struck in the king in yellow, all felt that human nature could not bear the strain nor thrive on words in which the essence of purest poison lurked. The very banality and innocence of the first act only allowed the blow to fall afterward with more awful effect. It was, I remember, the 13th day of April 1920, that the first government lethal chamber was established on the south side of Washington Square, between Worcester Street and South Fifth Avenue. The block, which had formerly consisted of a lot of shabby old buildings, used as cafes and restaurants for foreigners, had been acquired by the government in the winter of 1898. The French and Italian cafes and restaurants were torn down. The whole block was enclosed by a gilded iron railing and converted into a lovely garden with lawns, flowers, and fountains. In the center of the garden stood a small white building, severely classical in architecture and surrounded by thickets of flowers. Six ionic columns supported the roof and the single door was of bronze. A splendid marble group of the fates stood before the door, the work of a young American sculptor, Boris Vane, who had died in Paris when only 23 years old. The inauguration ceremonies were in progress as I crossed University Place and entered the square. I threaded my way through the silent throng of spectators, but was stopped at Fort Street by a cordon of police. A regiment of United States Lancers were drawn up in a hollow square around the lethal chamber. On a raised tribune facing Washington Park stood the governor of New York, and behind him were grouped the mayor of New York and Brooklyn, the inspector general of police, the commandant of the state troops, Colonel Livingston, military aide to the President of the United States, General Blunt, commanding at Governor's Island, Major General Hamilton, commanding the garrison of New York and Brooklyn, Admiral Buffby of the Fleet of the North River, Surgeon General Lansford, the staff of the National Free Hospital, Senators Wise and Franklin of New York, and the Commissioner of Public Works. The Tribune was surrounded by a squadron of hussars of the National Guard. The Governor was finishing his reply to the short speech of the Surgeon General. I heard him say, The laws providing suicide and providing punishment for any attempted self-destruction have been repealed. The government has seen fit to acknowledge the right of man to end an existence which may have become intolerable to him through physical suffering or mental despair. It is believed that the community will be benefited by the removal of such people from their midst. Since the passage of this law, the number of suicides in the United States has not increased. Now the government has determined to establish a lethal chamber in every city 
town and village in the country. It remains to be seen whether or not that class of human creatures from whose desponding ranks new victims of self-destruction fall daily will accept the relief thus provided. He paused and turned to the white lethal chamber. The silence in the street was absolute. There a painless death awaits him who can no longer bear the sorrows of this life. If death is welcome, let him seek it there. (laughs) Quickly turning to the military aide of the president's household, he said, I declare the lethal chamber open. And again, facing the vast crowd, he cried in a clear voice, Citizens of New York and the United States of America, through me the government declares the lethal chamber to be open. The solemn hush was broken by a sharp cry of command. The squadron of hussars filed after the governor's carriage. The lancers wheeled and formed along Fifth Avenue to wait for the commandant of the garrison, and the mounted police followed them. I left the crowd to gape and stare at the white marble death chamber, and crossing South Fifth Avenue, walked along the western side of that thoroughfare to Bleecker Street. Then I turned to the right and stopped before a dingy shop which bore the sign, Hallberg Armorer. I glanced in at the doorway and saw Hallberg busy in his little shop at the end of the hall. He looked me up and, catching sight of me, cried in his deep, hearty voice, "'Come in, Mr. Castine!' Constance, his daughter, rose to meet me as I crossed the threshold and held out her pretty hand. But I saw the blush of disappointment on her cheeks and knew that it was another castane she had expected, my cousin Louis. I smiled at her confusion and complimented her on the banner she was embroidering from a colored plate. Old Hallberg sat riveting the worn greaves of some ancient suit of armor, and the ting, ting, ting of his little hammer sounded pleasantly in the quaint shop. Presently he dropped his hammer and fussed about for a moment with a tiny wrench. The soft clash of the mail sent a thrill of fear through me. I love to hear the music of steel brushing against steel, and the mellow shock of the mallet on thigh pieces, and the jingle of chain armor. That was the only reason I went to see Hallberg. He had never interested me personally, nor did Constance, except for the fact of her being in love with Louis. This did occupy my attention, and sometimes even kept me awake at night. But I knew in my heart that all would come right, and that I should arrange their future as I expected to arrange that of my kind doctor, John Archer. However, I should never have troubled myself about visiting them just then, had it not been, as I say, that the music of the tinkling hammer had for me this strong fascination. I would sit for hours listening and listening, and when a stray sunbeam struck the inlaid steel, the sensation it gave me was almost too keen to endure. My eyes would become fixed, dilating with a pleasure that stretched every nerve almost to breaking, until some movement of the old armorer cut off the ray of sunlight. Then, still thrilling secretly, I leaned back and listened again to the sound of the polishing rag, swish, swish, rubbing rust from the rivets. Constance worked with the embroidery over her knees, now and then pausing to examine more closely the pattern in the colored plate from the Metropolitan Museum. "'Who's this for?' I asked. Holbrook explained that in addition to the treasures of armor in the Metropolitan Museum, of which he had been appointed armor, he also had charge of several collections belonging to rich amateurs. 
This was the missing grieve of a famous suit, which a client of his had traced back to a little shop in Paris on the Quai d'Orsay. He, Marburg, had negotiated for and the grieve, and now the suit was complete. He laid down his hammer and read me the history of the suit, traced from 1450 from owner to owner until it was acquired by Thomas Danbridge. When his superb collection was sold, this client of Harburg's bought the suit, and since then the search for the missing grieve had been pushed until it was almost by accident located in Paris. Did you continue the search so persistently without any certainty of the grieve being in existence? I demanded. Of course, he replied coolly. Then, for the first time, I took a personal interest in Harburg. It was worth something to you, I ventured. No, he replied, laughing. My pleasure in finding it was my reward. Have you no ambition to be rich? I asked, smiling. My one ambition is to be the best armorer in the world, he answered gravely. Constance asked me if I had seen the ceremonies at the lethal chamber. She herself had noticed cavalry passing up Broadway that morning and had wished to see the inauguration, but her father wanted the banner finished and she had stated his request. Did you see your cousin, Mr. Castain, there? she asked, with the slightest tremor of her soft eyelashes. No, I replied carelessly. Lewis's regiment is maneuvering out in Westchester County. I rose and picked up my hat and cane. Are you going upstairs to see the lunatic again? laughed old Harburg. If Harburg knew how I loathe that word lunatic, he would never use it in my presence. It rouses certain feelings within me which I do not care to explain. However, I answered him quietly. I think I shall drop in and see Mr. Wilde for a moment or two. Poor fellow, said Constance with a shake of the head. It must be hard to live alone year after year, poor, crippled, and almost demented. It is very good of you, Mr. Castain, to visit him as often as you do. I think he is vicious, observed Harburg, beginning again with his hammer. I listened to the golden tinkle on the grave plates. When he had finished, I replied, No, he's not vicious, nor is he in the least demented. His mind is a wonder chamber, from which he can extract treasures that you and I would give years of our life to acquire. Hopperk laughed. I continued a little impatiently. He knows history as no one else could know it. Nothing, however trivial, escapes his search, and his memory is so absolute, so precise in details, that were it known in New York that such a man existed, the people could not honor him enough. Nonsense, muttered Hallberg, searching on the floor for a fallen rivet. Is it nonsense, I asked, managing to suppress what I felt. Is it nonsense when he says that the tacits and cassards of the enameled suit of armor, commonly known as the prince's emblazoned, can be found among a mass of rusty theatrical properties, broken stoves and rag pickers refuse in a garret on Pell Street. Hallberg's hammer fell to the ground but he picked it up and asked, with a great deal of calm, how I knew that the tacits and left cassard were missing from the princess emblazoned. I did not know until Mr. Wilde mentioned it to me the other day. 
he said they were in the garret of 998 Pell Street. Nonsense, he cried. But I noticed his hand trembling under his leathern apron. Is this nonsense too? I asked pleasantly. Is it nonsense when Mr. Wilde continually speaks of you as the Marquis of Avonshire and of Miss Constance? I did not finish, for Constance had started to her feet with terror, written on every feature. Hauberg looked at me and slowly smoothed his leathern apron. That is impossible, he observed. Mr. Wilde may know a great many things, about armor, for instance, and the prince's emblazoned, I interposed, smiling. Yes, he continued slowly, about armor also, maybe, but he is wrong in regard to the Marquis of Avonshire, who, as you know, killed his wife's traducer years ago and went to Australia where he did not long survive his wife. Mr. Wilde is wrong, murmured Constance. Her lips were blanched, but her voice was sweet and calm. Let us agree, if you please, that in this one circumstance, Mr. Wilde wrong, I said. I climbed the three dilapidated flights of stairs, which I had so often climbed before, and knocked at a small door at the end of the corridor. Mr. Wilde opened the door, and I walked in. When he had double-locked the door and pushed a heavy chest against it, he came and sat down beside me, peering up into my face with his little light-colored eyes. Half a dozen new scratches covered his nose and cheeks, and the silver wires which supported his artificial ears had become displaced. I thought I had never seen him so hideously fascinating. He had no ears. The artificial ones, which now stood out at an angle from the fine wire, were his one weakness. They were made of wax and painted a shell pink, but the rest of his face was yellow. He might better have reveled in the luxury of some artificial fingers for his left hand, which was absolutely fingerless, but it seemed to cause him no inconvenience, and he was satisfied with his wax ears. It was very small, scarcely higher than a child of ten, but his arms were magnificently developed and his thighs as thick as any athlete's. Still, the most remarkable thing about Mr. Wilde was that a man of his marvelous intelligence and knowledge should have such a head. It was flat and pointed, like the heads of many of those unfortunates whom people imprison in asylums for the weak-minded. Many called him insane, but I knew him to be as sane as I was. I do not deny that he was eccentric, the mania he had for keeping that cat and teasing her until she flew at his face like a demon was certainly eccentric. I never could understand why he kept that creature, nor what pleasure he found in shutting himself up in his room with this surly, vicious beast. I remember once, glancing up from the manuscript I was studying by the light of some tallow dips, and seeing Mr. Wilde squatting motionless on his high chair, his eyes fairly blazing with excitement, while the cat, which had risen from her place before the stove, came creeping across the floor right at him. Before I could move, flattened her belly to the ground, crouched, trembled, and sprang into his face. Howling and foaming, they rolled over and over on the floor, scratching and clawing until the cat screamed and fled under the cabinet, and Mr. Wilde turned over on his back, his limbs contracting and curling up like the legs of a dying spider. He was eccentric. 
Mr. Wilde had climbed up into his high chair and, after studying my face, picked up a dog's-eared ledger and opened it. Henry B. Matthews, he read, bookkeeper with Wasit Wasit and Company, dealers in church ornament, called April 3rd. Reputation damaged on the racetrack, known as a welcher. Reputation to be repaired by August 1st, retainer $5. He turned the page and ran his fingerless knuckles down the closely written columns. P. Green Dusenberry, Minister of the Gospel, Fair Beach, New Jersey. Reputation damaged in the Bowery, to be repaired as soon as possible. Retainer 100. He coughed and added, called April 6th. Then you're not in need of money, Mr. Wilde, I inquired. Listen, he coughed again. Mrs. C. Hamilton Chester of Chester Park, New York City. Called April 7th, reputation damaged at Dieppe, France. To be repaired by October 1st, retainer $500. Note, C. Hamilton Chester, Captain USS Avalanche, ordered home from South Sea Squadron October 1st. Well, I said, the profession of a repairer of reputations is lucrative. His colorless eyes sought mine. I only wanted to demonstrate that I was correct. You said it is impossible to succeed as a repairer of reputations, that even if I did succeed in certain cases, it would cost me more than I would gain by it. Today I have 500 men in my employ, who are poorly paid, but who pursue the work with an enthusiasm which possibly may be born of fear. These men enter every grade and shade of society. Some even are pillars of the most exclusive social temples. Others are the prop and pride of the financial world. Still others hold undisputed sway among the fancy and the talent. I choose them at my leisure from those who reply to my advertisements. It is easy enough. They are all cowards. I could treble the number in twenty days if I wished. So, you see... Those who have in their keeping the reputations of their fellow citizens, I have in my pay. They may turn on you, I suggested. He rubbed his thumb over his cropped ears and adjusted the wax substitutes. I think not, he murmured thoughtfully. I seldom have to apply the weapon then only once. Besides, they like their wages. How do you apply the whip, I demanded. His face for a moment was awful to look upon. His eyes dwindled to a pair of green sparks. I invite them to come and have a little chat with me, he said in a soft voice. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to read. If you know of any, let us know. Email bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel for your enjoyment. You can go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to spread the word. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a... There's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening.
Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>